Thank you, Roy. Good evening, everybody. Tonight we're going to continue our essential word series, our journey through the whole Bible. And at the minute we're in the Psalms. I found a great quote from John Calvin on the Psalms. Calvin says that in the Psalms, the Holy Spirit has represented to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, anxieties, in short, all the stormy emotions by which human minds are wont to be agitated. Calvin says that our agitated human minds need the Psalms. And as a devotional handbook of how we should relate to our Heavenly Father, there's nothing like the Psalms. Tonight, as Roy has said, we're looking in particular at Psalm 103. I found another great quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon on Psalm 103. And, and he says of Psalm 103, As in the lofty Alps, some peaks rise above all others. So among even the inspired Psalms, there are heights of song which overtop the rest. This 103rd Psalm is the Monte Rosa of the divine chain of mountains of praise, glowing with a ruddier light than any of the rest. It makes me feel slightly nervous as I, as I go to expound it and preach it, but Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. I want us to read through Psalm 103 together, but before we do, let me just say something of the, the flow of the psalm so that as we read it, you can go with it. The psalm begins with David prodding, prompting, and urging himself to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord's soul. Remember his benefits. Speak of his wonders. Then, after two verses of self-prodding, follow 17 reasons for blessing the Lord, 17 benefits that David has not forgotten, that he cherishes. And when he comes to the end of the list, he can no longer settle for just calling his own soul to bless the Lord. He has remembered so much of God that he can't be satisfied until all the angels and all of the works of creation join him in blessing the Lord. So if you stand, we can read Psalm 103 together. Well, I'll read it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repays us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But 
The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Please take your seats. Over the past few weeks, I've been thinking quite a lot about Psalm 103, as, as I probably should be. But I've also been mostly thinking about Roy McElroy and uh, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic and it's just been fantastic sport recently but it's I find it really amazing to think how these guys can focus all of their energy all of their being on their purpose they have perfected the art of cajoling their very soul you know it's one thing to have the natural ability focused on the task, but these guys are into what they are doing in their entirety with all that they are. But there's a serious amount of self-cajoling going on. It's really, they're really you know, going for it. They're really trying to drive their soul in, into action. Do you ever talk to yourself? Maybe you do in the sports pitch or when you really want to achieve something, you're really focused on it. Your, your mind speaks into your soul, into your very gumption to, to drive you to action. But do we do this when we come to worship God? Maybe we don't really feel it's appropriate. Maybe we feel that to talk ourselves into it shows a lack of respect to him. David is saying in, in these verses, I know I want to bless the Lord. But I also know I'm not really 100% committed. But it's, it's up to me to get tanked up and worship God. You know, talking ourselves into worship is worship. You know, have we thought about that before? If I'm honest, it's, it's been a bit of a, like a revelation for me. When I would be half-hearted in my worship, I would feel unworthy and bad about myself and it would probably keep me from, from a fuller sense of worship. And the idea of carrying out a charm offensive on my soul, the idea of talking myself into it, doesn't really sit that well with me. But what the Bible is telling us here is that we are fallen creatures. It's natural to be half-hearted. And we will have good intentions of worship, but it's up to us to drive those good intentions on, to consume our being, to bring our soul in on the act. There's one kind of key thing I want to say tonight, and one sort of key theme, and and that is that worship is expansive. And this idea of, come on, is part of worship. Now, when I say expansive, I don't mean something that costs a lot of money and bala money. 
That's a wild expansive quarter you got there. And I, and I thought about not using that word because it's, it's dangerous with a Northern Ireland accent. But what I mean by expansive is that it's expanding and also fills a huge expanse. So the key message tonight is that we need to recognize that worship is expansive. And also that we should be really trying to drive our own soul on to worship. We should deal with how we come to worship the way that these guys deal with a Wimbledon final. We need to bring our soul in on the act. This Psalm 103 is an expansive movement of worship. There's lots of movement in the writing style. It, it begins with a personal call to praise, and then it closes by kind of forming a circle back in itself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And some commentators point out that the, the number of verses in the psalm are the same number as the letters in the Hebrew alphabet, speaking something of its completeness. I want to just spend a, a few moments kind of going through the psalm, looking at some of the key verses, going through verse by verse. Verse 1. Bless can mean a lot of things, but here in verse 1 it means to affectionately and gratefully praise. To bless is to worship, and worship is to revere, you know, to show adoration. At its simplest, worship is to show worth. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. It's like David is, is kind of tuning the guitar strings or the, or the, the lyre strings, ready for this sweet melody of praise that's about to be unleashed. Verse 2 also says, and forget not all his benefits. Eugene Peterson has a great quote, which says, forgetfulness atrophies the muscles of praise and leaves them flabby and passive, but remembrance, particularly relevant tonight around the Lord's table, remembrance internalizes a history of grace and strengthens praise into blessing so that we act in a renewing way on our environment. Back into the psalm, there's a list of personal blessings from verse 3 to verse 5 that begins with forgiveness and ends with immortal youth. And verse 3, pardon sin, that's where it needs to begin. And maybe tonight you don't know Jesus, you don't know sin's forgiven. And if that's the case... You know, we'd love to talk to you about that. You can come to him, ask for his forgiveness, accept his redemption, his rescue plan, and ask him to be king of your life. Verse 4. By being redeemed, we are crowned with his ever-love and compassion. Verse 5. Who satisfies you with good. Mick Jagger and mankind in themselves can't get no satisfaction. But God satisfies the very soul of man. He bestows really good things, not toys or idle pleasures, so that our youth is renewed, like the eagles. This seems to refer to the kind of molding and renewal of the eagle's wings, a, a, a continued renewal. David then moves on from personal blessing to look to others. Verse 6, All wrongs shall be righted, all the oppressed shall be avenged. You know, justice may at times not seem to be done in our courts, but we can be sure and we can know that it will be done with the great tribunal of God. 
Verse 7. David's God is not a God of imagination, but of, of revelation. God alone can reveal himself, and it, it begins with God. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. We're all guilty sinners, and we naturally move away from himself to ourselves. And we need God's mercy and grace. Verse 8 also says that he's slow to anger and, and rich in love. For God's anger and love, I've kind of had two pictures in my mind. Of lightning and of the sun. You know, God's anger may be like a slow build-up of pressure and then a flash like lightning. And it's gone, it's discharged, it's diffused, and it's forgotten. There comes a time when God must show his anger. But his anger will not last forever. We read that in verse 9. And in verse 10, his chastising is less than we deserve. But his love is a constant like the sun. It's always there. It's always shining. It's always a source of light, of heat, of life. But we must note the conditions of this love and this compassion. Three times we see it in verse 11, verse 13, and verse 17. It's to those who fear him. I think fearing God means that we would not dare to run from him but only we run to him for all that he is for us. So we run to him or we we come to him with reverence. We come humbly, we come broken, we come hungry. And to me, that's what fearing God means, that that we want to come to him. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I was reading a bit of Spurgeon, so I just saw another fantastic quote that I had to share with you on verse 12. O glorious verse, no word, even upon the inspired page, can excel it. Sin is removed from us by a miracle of love. What a load to move. And yet it is removed so far that the distance is incalculable. Fly as far as the wing of imagination can bear you. And if your journey bears you, Through space eastward, you are further from the west at every beat of your wing. If sin be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. This be the distance of its removal. There is no shade of fear of its ever being brought back again. Our sins are gone. Jesus has borne them away, carried by our scapegoat 19 centuries ago. And now if they be sought for, they shall not be found. Yea, they shall not be, saith the Lord. It's amazing. (laughs) Carrying on through the verses, verse 13, "As As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And the implication of this verse is a good father is a picture of God. And the challenge from the verse to those of us who are fathers is that our calling is to show to our children and to others the fatherhood of God. Verse 14, when David says in verse 14 that we are like dust, 
It causes David to reflect on the shortness of human life and the never beginning, never ending life and love of God. And what a brilliant contrast we read in verse 15 to verse 17 between a fading flower and this everlasting God. And his mercy links our frailty to his eternity and it makes us everlasting too. Verse 18, the requirement of obedience is that our fear of God and our trust in Christ is to be real and to be fruitful. You know, it's Christ and his blood that forgive and justify us. That's very clear from scripture. But our obedience, imperfect as it is, shows that our faith is real. Verse 19, he has boundless power and sovereignty. His throne is fixed. It's established, it's settled, it's immovable. In verse 20 to 22, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works. And bless the Lord, O my soul. David closes on his keynote, O my soul. David wants his soul to keep time with all of the universe every corner of time and space as it rings out Jehovah's praise. So what Psalm 103 is is stressing more than anything else is that we should, for our children, for our friends, for our church, for our city, for our own soul, bless the Lord. I said at the beginning that Worship is expansive and that come on, kind of self-cajoling is part of worship. Worship has impulses that want to widen, that want to stretch, that want to swell, increase, enlarge, snowball. And as we have seen, it begins with God's initiative. He reveals himself and then there's something of a shortfall between our kind of spiritual perception of his greatness and the intensity of of our own worship. Our hearts aren't up to what he deserves. That's why a normal impulse of genuine worship is to plead with our own souls. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Come on, wake up. Look at what God has done for you. You know, we can't feel down and, and rubbish about ourselves when we're not really engaged and I know, I know I do. But this psalm tells me the fact that I feel my soul isn't fully kicked in it shows me that I believe that it should be. It shows me that I believe that God's worth deserves it. This psalm of David really encourages me that the very recognition of this shortcoming is worship. You know, it really encourages me that I should worship God the way Novak Djokovic goes about the Wimbledon final by calling all that we are, by calling our very soul in on the act. You know, the expansive impulse of worship doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with ourselves. It expands to say, bless the Lord, we his angels. 
Bless the Lord all his works in all places of dominion. The joy of worship is expansive. And our joy increases the more um, that we see more of God's creation joining with us in blessing the Lord. This is what the universe was made for. God created us for his glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7. He chose us for his namesake. Jeremiah 13 11. He saved us for his everlasting praise. Ephesians 1 6 12 14. So worship moves with an expansive impulse from God's revelation to our partial response to our prodding and urging our own souls to our calling all creation to join us in praise. So what do we do with all of this? You know, the psalm is, is overwhelmingly focused on blessing the Lord. And as we have seen, blessing the Lord is almost synonymous with, with praise. And Psalm 34 verse 1 puts it like this. And puts the two of these things together like this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise should continually be in my mouth. Notice that word mouth. Blessing the Lord means our, our speaking and our singing about his goodness and his greatness. But we've seen it's, it's not all about us. You know, have you thought about how important it is to bless the Lord with your very soul? As a gift to others. You know, if you're up for a challenge this week, maybe you want to pick one of these 17 great things that God has done for us. And see how you can go about openly blessing the Lord with your very soul. You know, if you want to pick one, may I suggest the immeasurable mercy of God to remove our sins from us. And just see how you could openly bless the Lord because of that. In all that you are, with someone you know, with your family or your friends. You know, as I've said earlier, our joy of worship increases the more we see more of God's creation blessing the Lord. And this world will one day hear praise flowing like a river that just keeps widening as it flows. kind of expansive movement of worship that goes on to fill all of everything. And that kind of idea is is glory itself. So worship is expansive and come on, it's a part of it. As I think of this psalm, how it's written, the kind of circular nature of its construction, this movement, this flow of expanse, of of ever-growing, I I think of God's love as high as the heavens, a kind of never-ending measurement, and I I think of how far he has removed, something that's totally incalculable. And I think of this praise always rising and never reaching crescendo, and I think of eternity and all praise to him from all creatures, filling this unmeasured expanse of time and space and foreverness and I say bless the Lord my soul